Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Good morning, everyone online. It's great to have you with us as well. We hope you're doing great. Uh, I, I'm so excited. We're in week two of a very short three-week series that we are unimaginatively calling Reopened. And uh, the idea behind this series is that as we reopen as a society in Hong Kong right now, there are some critical ways that I sense the Holy Spirit wants us to reopen ourselves to. Because here's the danger of the, the moment and the season that we're in in Hong Kong right now. The danger is that we reopen our society, that we re reopen our, the social distancing measures dropping down, and we reopen ourselves to one another in society, but we do so with closed hearts. Because everything that's happened over the last three months, four months, the last two years, three years, has a tendency, doesn't it, for us to close us in from one another. It has a tendency to actually challenge us to actually be more inward thinking, inward focus, more inward looking than actually outward loving. And so although the social distancing measures have come down and although we're reopening as society, the challenge for us is how do we make sure we don't reopen with a closed spirit? And so we're taking this series and looking at three specific ways over these three weeks that I think the Holy Spirit wants to reopen you. And last week I spoke about the important need for healing. That if we're truly going to be the people that God wants us to be in Hong Kong in this hour, we have to open ourselves up to a journey of healing. I said importantly last week that the removal of the problem is not necessarily the healing. That, that just because the social distancing measures have changed, just because COVID seems to be coming down, just because it seems like a society is a better place, it doesn't suddenly mean that we're all going to experience great flourishing. Because the reality is we have all carried trauma with us over the last two and three years. And that trauma doesn't just get wiped away because the, the problem of COVID is being removed. That trauma requires nothing less than the deep work of the cleansing, beautiful, powerful work of the Spirit of God on us. And so I challenged us last week, it's time to be open to a healing journey. To not put a, a Band-Aid on our COVID trauma, but to bring it to God and I said last week that the place of our healing is found in forgiveness. Forgiveness with God, forgiveness with one another, forgiveness even of ourselves. And that as we journey in a process of forgiveness, we produce this incredible thing, the love of God. The love of God is found in us, and the love of God then can move through us to people in our city. My challenge to us last week is that, that our city needs a healing movement off the back of everything it has experienced. But the church, if it is to be a vessel of God's love, has to heal. And the way we heal is by opening ourselves up to the forgiving power of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? That was last week. But this week, I want to focus again and continue to focus in on the personal. I want to speak again about what's going on inside of us. And I want to share something today that is not it's not necessarily going to be easy for us to hear. It's going to be a challenging word, but I want, to, I want to just pray and ask you up front just to keep your heart open to this. Because I think what I'm going to share this morning is perhaps the most critical thing that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life as you now reemerge out of this fifth wave. And I want to say this right up front. I want to frame it by naming some things. 
I think right now in the global church, God is doing something unprecedented that he hasn't done for many years. In fact, if I was to put it most bluntly and cleanly, I would say it this way, that the Holy Spirit is shining an uncomfortably bright light on what is wrong, evil, and broken in the global church that he so deeply loves. He's shining a uncomfortably bright light on the sin that is in the church. I don't know about you, but I've lost count of the number of global Christian leaders that have had a fall from grace recently. And I want to just honor the incredibly brave men and women who are coming forward in the pews around the world and speaking up for some of the experiences that they have experienced. We know the church is not a perfect place. But we have seen people, leaders, churches we've respected, leaders that we've honored, people that we've followed for many years, have leadership and moral failures. We've seen power and spiritual abuse taking place in the church. We've seen recently sexual and exploitative practices taking place within the church, and this breaks God's heart. And I think what we're experiencing in the global church, we need to name. What we're experiencing is, the best way I could say it is this, I think Jesus is coming once again to cleanse the temple. And like in that time where he came and he turned over tables and it was uncomfortable for people. I think there's a global move of the spirit right now that isn't comfortable for us in the church. But it's one that is founded in love. That God so loves his church, his bride, his people, that he would care so deeply that he would come and turn tables that need to be turned. Now this is interesting because it's very easy for us here in Hong Kong, perhaps in this time, to hear the stories, to read the newspaper articles, to see the stuff happening on social media, to almost, if you will, point fingers at all the things that are happening in the messiness of the global church out there. We're really good, I think, as Christians at seeing the speck in everybody else's eyes and ignoring the plank that might be in ours. And I think if the global church, if the Spirit of God is moving upon the global church right now in this way, then that means he's also moving on the local church right here in Hong Kong. And I want to say this, a question before us that I want to challenge us as a church, a church that I deeply love here at the Vine. I want to ask us this, could it be that Jesus also needs to turn up right here, right now? and turn over some of our tables. This moment where Jesus came and turned over the tables in Scripture, in that moment when he entered the temple, is one of the most powerful, symbolic, and prophetic moments that Jesus does in all of his ministry. It's a moment that's captured for us, actually, in all four of the Gospels. That's how important it was. And I want to read to you today from the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew presents it in a, a clear and concise way. Let me read this to us. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. Everybody okay? Strap yourselves in. You ready? I love you. Just know that up front. <laughs> Jesus loves you more. Amen. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the temples of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will become a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The context here is the Passover festival. The festival that the Jewish people celebrated for one week every year. The most important festival that they celebrated. A festival of great cheer and joy. Because it was a festival that celebrated the miraculous power of God. To be able to step into a broken people. Redeem and restore them. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And by his miracle working power through the blood placed over every wall and door. Release the Jewish people towards their promised land. And once a year they would gather. Jewish people and God-fearing Greeks from all over the Greco-Roman Empire would gather in Jerusalem for this week to literally celebrate the power and the beauty and the wonder of a God who sets people free. And alongside of that is this really interesting historical footnote. Because Jerusalem in this week is celebrating the release of slavery from oppression, but in that moment they were still under oppression. The Greco-Roman Empire still ruling harshly over them. And so alongside of the celebration was this tense political atmosphere in Jerusalem at the time of that week. The zealots, who were a a sect of Judaism at the time, believed in inciting violence and, and rebellion in order to bring a toppling of the power. And those zealots were active in this week. So the Passover week, yes, it was a celebration of the wonder and power of God, but it was also this tense moment. You could almost feel it in the city, a politically tense time. And I wonder if that reminds us of anything. And in the middle of this, Jesus comes. In fact, he decides that this is the week that he should show up in Jerusalem. And he shows up on that donkey fulfilling Old Testament prophetic tradition, but also, importantly, not coming as a conquering king, as everybody wanted the Messiah to do, but coming as a humble servant. The first thing he does is he walks straight off that donkey, straight to the temple. Ah, the temple. The temple was the most magnificent, beautiful thing. It was the place that housed God's presence on earth, the glory of his presence for all to see. And Jesus had a relationship, a long relationship with the temple. We we know in scripture that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple when he was just eight days old to be dedicated before the Lord and to be circumcised. We know that actually uh, during his, his youth, he had his bar mitzvah at the temple at the age of 12. That great story, right, where he stayed behind after his family had left so that he could teach in the temple courts and his parents are freaking out because they can't find him, right? After that, though, we don't hear any more stories of Jesus visiting Jerusalem or the temple. In fact, for the majority of his ministry, Jesus purposely stays away from Jerusalem and the temple. And he stays away because he knows that when he does set foot in that temple, he knows that there is going to be a stirring and the beginning of all of the events that are going to precipitate themselves to his death on the cross and his resurrection. And before he was ready for that, he had teaching to do, miracles to do, compassion to lay out. He needed to shape what the kingdom of God was going to look like. And so he had done all that. And now at this moment, he finally shows up to the temple for the very first time in years. And what he sees tears his heart apart. He walks into this temple expecting it to be a certain way. And it's completely changed since the last time he went there. 
And because of that, he does some crazy stuff. Listen to this. He drives out all who are buying and selling there. He overturns the temple, uh, the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. This is not a Jesus that we know, is it? We don't know this kind of Jesus. This is not a Jesus that's particularly comfortable for us. In fact, we read about this sort of Jesus and we, we wonder how this kind of Jesus fits into the nice, loving, kind, compassionate, merciful, powerful type Jesus, the kumbaya, I want to sit on your lap and give you a cuddle, safe kind of Jesus. That's the Jesus that largely the Gospels have shown us. In fact, that's the Jesus that Matthew has shown us. Pages and pages of his compassion and his love and his mercy and his grace. And we're, we're building up this profile of who Jesus is. And then in this moment, Jesus breaks out of the box that we've all put him in. And because he's suddenly now doing stuff that we didn't expect, that we don't think fits the sort of Jesus profile we have, we really struggle to understand this Jesus. This is like that Christmas lunch that you had a few years ago where your uncle drank too much and started to say and do things that embarrassed the whole family, and now no one talks about it. Are you with me? We all have that uncle. This is like the disciples are like, who is this Jesus? Like, we don't know or necessarily recognize this. And I think this is the point. You see, Jesus is doing something in this moment that he wants his church, he wants his disciples, the apostles, to truly understand actually about his character and his nature. That, that Jesus, yes, is the one who's compassionate and loving and kind. But the kind of Jesus we worship is not just a miracle-working, lost sheep-gathering, you know, kind, wise, old sage. He is also a Jesus who is so passionate about the kingdom of God that if something comes against the, the ongoing, unfolding work of the kingdom, if something works against the very heart and the vision that God has, if the very dwelling place of God's presence on earth is not actually representing the things that it should be representing about God, then yes, Jesus will show up. And if the moment is right, he will turn over tables. Yes, Jesus is one who turns over the cheek, but he's also one who turns over tables. And the question is, do we want to know that Jesus? Interestingly, the fact that the temple court was filled with merchants and people selling and trading was not necessarily unusual because the temple was all about the sacrificial system. It was all actually about taking an animal, bringing an animal and, and sacrificing it as a worship offering to God. And so the Jewish leaders of the temple had actually created an environment by which worshipers could do what it was that they should do when they came to the temple. I mean, it would have been really annoying for worshipers to have to carry their own animals from their home to the temple to worship. And so instead, it, we made it easy for them. We just set up places where they could buy their, their pigeons or their doves or the, for the wealthy, the goats and the sheep, to be able to bring in and to sacrifice in the temple. It kind of makes sense. So the question is, what's Jesus really upset about here? Well, we get that answer by looking not just at what he did, but looking at what he said as he did it. Is this okay for everybody so far? You with me? Yeah. All right, good. Listen to what he said. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. Other places, a house of prayer for all nations. But you are making it a den of robbers. 
Jesus, as he classically does, quotes from two Old Testament prophets in front of all the people to explain to them why he was doing what he was doing. He, he, he quotes literally from Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And we need to understand these two things to understand the bigger context of what's happening here. So let me just briefly open these up for you. Let's start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not a comfortable prophet to be around. Jer- I don't know if you've ever tried to read the book of Jeremiah. It is hard going. Jeremiah spends the majority of his time getting in the face of Israel and speaking to them about their sin. And chapter 7, where where we're looking at here and what Jesus speaks from, is the very place where Jeremiah actually confronts Israel for the sin of the temple. Uh, Let me read this to you from Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 9. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. Will you steal and murder Commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known. And then, note this, come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, oh, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. This is not good. God uses Jeremiah to confront Israel. And basically he's saying, look, this is how you live Monday to Saturday. You are adulterers. You're fornicators. You're doing all this stuff. You're lying. You're, You're worshiping other gods. And then you come on Sunday into the house of God, a house that bears my name, it's almost like God is saying, and that, this is the critical bit. Let me, let me read that bit to you one more time because this is super, super critical. He says, this house which bears my name. You see, I think God wouldn't care so much if you're acting like that in your house. I think he does still care, but less so. <laughs> but when you come into his house, he's saying to Israel, you come into the temple And you bring all of that stuff with you, the house that bears my name. This is like, he's basically saying, this temple is supposed to represent my character. When when scripture speaks of the name, it doesn't mean God. It means everything God represents. He's like, my temple is supposed to represent everything about me. My heart, my compassion, my love, my, 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 my grace. It's supposed to represent the things that the kingdom stands for. That's what the temple is all about. And you come in there professing my name in the house that carries my name. And your name has nothing to do with my name. And he says, that's detestable. Jesus shows up in the temple in the middle of a wonderful celebration of the Passover. And he sees that Jeremiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. That the temple is indeed run amok and no longer represents the name of God. And so he turns over tables. Thankfully, he doesn't just speak from Jeremiah, though. He also speaks from Isaiah, and Isaiah is so much nicer. 
Isaiah 56 is one of the great chapters in the prophetic book of Isaiah, where God paints through Isaiah a beautiful, welcoming, wonderful picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. This is Isaiah saying, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring a kingdom in the world that looks like this. And there are three things in Isaiah 56 specifically that the vision of the kingdom looks like. First of all, all the broken are going to be able to come into covenant with God. God is going to open his heart, so if anybody is broken, they're going to be able to find restitution, restoration, forgiveness, and love with God. The broken are welcome. The second thing you see in Isaiah 56, in this grand vision of God's heart, is that you see foreigners are welcome to come and draw near to God. Gentiles, you and I, if you're not a Jewish person in this room or watching online, we are welcome to come in and draw near to the presence of God. It's right there in God's grand scheme of how he sees the world. And then thirdly, outcasts, the defiled, the sinful, the ones who are not clean, they are also welcomed to God's presence. They're welcomed in, which I want to tell you is very good news for every single one of us. And Isaiah 56 is, is basically Isaiah prophesying over a broken Israel who are coming back from exile, reestablishing themselves back in the land, and they're about to build this temple again. And Isaiah is saying this, if you're going to build a house that carries God's name, it's going to have to look something like this, where the broken are welcomed. It's going to have to look a bit like a place where actually foreigners can come and gather. And it needs to look like a bit of a place where the outcasts, the ones that you think shouldn't be in the temple, get to come and worship in the temple. That's the great vision. And Jesus shows up in the temple at Passover. And the very place, note this, the very place that was designed by Zerubbabel, who built the temple, to house Isaiah's 56 chapter vision. It was called the court of the Gentiles, the place where the Gentiles could come, the place where the outcasts were welcomed, the place where those who were broken could find covenant with God. That outer court was so filled with Jewish people trying to profit off the sacrificial system that there was no longer any room for the Gentiles to come. The Gentile court had become a merchant place of exploitative practices. And Jesus shows up, and he is broken by this. It's not only about what Jeremiah saw and the sin that they were carrying, it was also about the fact that the temple was no longer revealing the kingdom of God. It was no longer showing the world what the kingdom needed to look like. You see, the Jewish leaders had turned over their temple. So Jesus showed up and turned over their tables. You need to know this about God. You need to know this, that Jesus will always fight for the places on earth where his presence dwells that Jesus is jealous over his house, that Jesus is purifying his bride, that a broken church like we are will be presented to him one day when he returns as a pure, spotless bride, that Jesus loves to fight on behalf of the places where his presence dwells. And this idea becomes the cornerstone of how the first church thought about discipleship. This idea becomes the cornerstone of how the first church begins to teach what it is to know and encounter and be with the presence of God, because no longer is this church drawing itself to that physical 
Bible temple. That church is now gathering in smaller communities all around the Greco-Roman Empire. And the church was wondering, how do we continue to understand and walk with and counter the presence of God? And then Paul, the apostle Paul, writing just a few years after Jesus had cleansed the temple by turning over tables, the apostle Paul writes to his church who are trying to work out all of what discipleship now looked like under the death and resurrection of Jesus. He writes something to them that was so revolutionary and so controversial that even still to this day, it blows my mind. Are you ready for this? Are you still here? Are you okay? I haven't, I've been nice so far, by the way. Are you ready? Flee from sexual immorality. For all other sins a person commits are outside their body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Here it is. Do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? You are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It blows my mind that Paul is able to do something that is so powerly, powerfully theological as this. What Paul does is basically go this. Do you know all of that stuff that we believed about the temple in Jerusalem? How it was supposed to be a place that carries the name of God. How it was literally the dwelling place on earth where the presence of God was. How Isaiah 56 vision said that it was a place where, where the broken could come, where the Gentiles were welcome, where the outcasts were. Do you remember all of that about the temple? Great. Well, hold that in your mind. You now are the temple. You, yourself. You, your body. You have the Holy Spirit now dwelling in you. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, that Holy Spirit dwelt in the temple and we had to gather towards that temple. Now, because of what happens in Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, Paul is saying to his church, that Spirit now lives in you. And if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you yourself are a temple. Your body, he says, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. By that, he's talking about the physical body, but he's also talking about your lifestyle, who you are, how you operate, what you think, the way you go about in the world. All of that is a representation of the vision of Isaiah 56. The beauty of the kingdom of God is now found in you because the Spirit has decided to reside in you. And it's such a beautiful vision. And when you understand... Oh, man, I'm getting excited. When you understand that the Greco-Roman concept of the body was basically one where it was immaterial. It was a shell. The body wasn't important. What mattered was the immortal soul. And the immortal soul was inside this, this shell of a body, but eventually that body will pass, but the immortal soul will somehow go up and, and be with the gods. And so the Greco-Roman culture and the Greco-Roman philosophical thought was it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. In fact, Paul quotes from the philosophers at the beginning of this chapter. Everything is permissible for me, he says, but not everything is beneficial. 
I can eat and drink and do what I want with my body, but are you really free? He challenges his church. He's speaking against the Greek or Roman thought that the body didn't matter. And because the body didn't matter in Greek or Roman culture, people slept around all the time. They did stuff with their bodies because it didn't really matter. And Paul's saying to the church, mm, if you bring that Greek or Roman cultural thought into the house that carries the name of God, you are living out Jeremiah 7 in that moment. No, you now need to see your body not as an immaterial shell that houses the immortality of the soul. You need to now see your body as the dwelling place on earth of the Spirit of God. And if you see it that way, it's a temple. And if it's a temple, it should carry the name of God. If it's a temple, it should stand for the vision of the kingdom of God. What you do with your life, your words, your mouth, your body, it matters, Paul is saying to the church. And because it matters, you're a temple of the living Holy Spirit. And if we're a temple of God, then here's the question we ask ourselves. Are we a temple that pleases Jesus? Or let me ask it in another way that I think is quite sobering. If Jesus was to show up today in your temple, would he need to turn over any tables? I want you to think about that for a moment. I know if Jesus was to show up in my temple, and he is and has and is right now, because I can sense him, I know there are tables that need to be turned over in mine. As we emerge out of this fifth wave, and as we desire to be the people of God that God truly needs for Hong Kong in this time, a Hong Kong that desperately needs healing and strengthening, then we, I, I think we have to allow the Holy Spirit to do what's happening globally, locally. I think we have to open up our temple, both the collective corporate temple, but also the individual personal temple, and allow the Holy Spirit to come in and drive out some thoughts and some ideas and some of the ways that we think about others, some of the stuff that we hold in our minds. And we need to allow Jesus to come in and turn over the tables of our practices, some of the things that we do that don't bring glory to the name of God. And no one is perfect. And this isn't about being perfect, but this is about being purified and cleansed. You see, Jesus' presence is always at work purifying his church. And he will come and he will do that both in the gentleness of grace and in the righteousness of anger. And I want you to hear this, because this is the most important thing I'm going to say. Both of those are acts of love. Both of those is Jesus showing his love. Scriptures teach us that the greatest place of love that has ever been seen is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is that painful execution where he paid the price for our sins. That is the greatest act of love that this world has ever seen or ever known. You see, love and sin are far more connected than perhaps we realize. And when Jesus comes to cleanse his temple, it's actually an act of love for the temple and for the people within it. And, and so when we actually take a good, hard look at the sin in our lives, what we're actually doing is opening ourselves up to the deepest encounter of the love of Christ that we can. I wonder if you've ever thought of it that way before. 
I love uh, one of my heroes of the faith is Pope Francis. I love how Pope Francis puts this. Let me read this to you. He says this, the privileged place for the encounter with Christ is our sins. Isn't that amazing? Not as Paul would write, so therefore do I just go on sinning so that I can receive more of his grace? No. But isn't it amazing that the privileged place for us as Christians, for the encounter of the love of Christ, is the recognition of our sin. Because as we see our sin and as we know it and understand it, we bring it to him and he frees us from it. So what does it mean for us to reopen the end of this fifth wave? I think it means this, that we take a good, honest look at what is happening in our temple and we invite Jesus to come and turn over any tables. And so because of that, I stand before you today without making an apology to say, deal with the sin in your life. Because we're in a season by the Holy Spirit over the global church that I believe is a season of grace. There's a window of grace. And when we deal with our sin, we encounter his love. I don't know about you, but I want us to be a church that reveals Isaiah 56. A church that is so open with its arms over a broken and hurting city. And I know in order for us to do that, we need to open our arms to a Jesus who turns cheeks and turns tables. A Jesus who so loves us that he's willing to come and cleanse and purify us. It is a good good thing. And I pray that you would open yourselves up today to encourage that and invite that kind of love. I wonder whether we could pray together. Could we pray? Father, we are so grateful. Grateful for your word. Not always easy. Not always comfortable. But always what we need to hear. Lord, we thank you that Jesus gives us this part of his personality that we have to understand. Jesus enters the temple and is so distraught for what it's become that in righteousness, in love, he grabs a hold of those two Old Testament prophetic moments and he does something prophetically before the church, the people. Lord, I'm so thankful for, for Paul who so deeply understood the temple and the work of Jesus that he was, be able, he was able to stand before his church and challenge them, flee from sexual immorality and that he would help them to understand that under the reign of the kingdom of God and Jesus that the Greco-Roman cultural ambivalence to the body would go and that a new temple had come, us, the people of God with the Holy Spirit inside of us as his temple here today. Father, I want to pray for those online and for those in the room right now. Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful that you so love us that you don't leave us wallowing in our sin. You so love us that you draw near to us in this moment. Lord, our hearts are heavy for the sin that we're seeing in the church around the world. And some of the things that have happened to men and women, it tears us apart. 
But Lord, protect us from the arrogance that would say that that is somebody else's problem. I pray you would give the vine the humility to look at the plank in our eye. Father, I want to pray that you would convict our senior leadership, Lord. If there are practices, attitudes, thoughts that are not of you, that don't represent your name, Lord, would you purify your church? Lord, I want to pray for the individuals in this room. I want to pray you would come now in your love. No one here is perfect. Jesus is not demanding perfection. What he's doing is just drawing close to you in love and saying, this thing right here, hey, let me come. I've already forgiven you of it. Let me come now and just remove it from you. Why don't you bring it to me? Why don't you give it to me? Why don't you let me come and just turn that table over? It's done. Why don't you come? Why don't you let me come and just release you from that? So I want to encourage you just in your time now, just take a moment. Allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And I want to encourage you, if, you're, if you've come here together today with someone, you're sitting amongst friends, that in this response time in a moment, I want to encourage you to actually ask somebody to pray for you. This is an important part of what confession, repentance is about. You know, the worship team, before we started our service, we all gathered in the back stairs and we all shared confession with one another. It was such a powerful time. And so if you come here together today with some friends or people that you know and you're comfortable, I want to encourage you just to say, hey, the Holy Spirit's just asking me to pray for this. Would you, would you pray for me right now? I want to challenge you to do that. If, if you're here on your own today, if you're, if you're just here on your own, you can just have that time with the Holy Spirit or you can, if you're brave enough, say hi to the person next to you. Or we have a prayer team after the service that will stand and pray with you as well if you're here on your own today. No one needs to leave here today without prayer, whether that's prayer that's happening from people around them or whether that's prayer from us as a team. But let's not rush away from what the Spirit is saying to the church. If we truly want to reopen, then may we allow Jesus to cleanse us.